What's up, everyone? Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm your host, Paul Keelan. And I'm your other host, Jordan Puga. And today we're here with Mark Dottavio. So what's up, Mark? How's it going? Hey, great. I'm very happy to be here and grateful that you're letting a pretty much sports illiterate guest onto your show. But I can definitely bring that perspective to, you know, how a movie was going to work if you don't totally understand or watch sports much in real life. So this was a good choice, I think, for that. Not a problem at all. Yeah, we have actually mostly sports <laughs> illiterate guests, I would say, right? Nine out of 10, I feel more cinema-based and sports-based. That said, for our listeners, Mark is the co-host of Unwatchables. It's a great podcast. I've been listening to it on my drives a lot. Uh, you have an amazing slate of guests all the time. They they cover like Von Schreer and Henneke and just all of the like infant terribles, <laughs> you know, the provocateurs mm. and Harmony Kareem you've done, Todd Salon's, uh, I'm already kind of pitching it. I'll let you kind of tell our audience what you do, what your focus is, and yeah, your main thesis of your podcast. Yeah, you did a pretty good job with the kind of different things that we cover because um, we didn't want it to be just about bad movies in the sense of unwatchable. We wanted them to be about films that just could be difficult to watch for any reason. So we have done a couple episodes on films that were big flops or that there is something that could be unwatchable just because like this is this you know it's just terrible like we did do a month that was kind of devoted to flops and some of those you know range from like cats and the uh new space jam movie but then you know then we use it as an opportunity to talk about yeah southland tales and some films like that that people were you know kind of arguing were actually really good although i didn't think the southland tales was actually good but there were some there were some good ones in there that did uh we talked about under the silver lake because that got kind of a reputation as the the new southland tales but i, I really like that movie yeah so but that, those are kind of the exception we tend to focus on stuff that yeah we did an episode on john waters you mentioned von trier and haneke and uh, larry clark uh, harmony kareen recently yeah we have some cool ones coming up uh just a little preview we did what our most recent one was on dogville and really we could cover a, a lot of von trier if we wanted to we could do a whole podcast just on him he's like the most unwatchable director uh but we have ones coming out about uh freaks the film from the 30s and uh what was the last one that we just recorded oh about yorgos lanthimos films like dogtooth we like to cast a wide net about what could be considered unwatchable and then just decide like are we just being trolled here would you unwatch this if you could or is this something really worth going through here and you mentioned the guests that we've had on. We did kind of level up starting with our episode where we had Mike D'Angelo on, which was like a dream come true for me because I've been reading him for like years and years and years. And, you know, since then, it's, you know, it's actually not that difficult. Some people don't respond or aren't interested in coming on. But, um, you know, we just had Vanity Fair's chief critic on and a lot of Chicago-based writers that I'm a big fan of, like um, like A.A. Dowd and Nathan Rabin and Keith Phipps. And uh, I, I just love it. But we do still have other people on that, you know, we just know or from more local, you know, podcasts and artists and stuff. It's been a journey, but I, I love it. It's great. It was so wild when you had Mike D'Angelo on, too, because all of the films you cover, 
he covered in this series he did, I think, called The Conversations. He had this long form, long running, I don't know what to call it. Like, it's not just one article, but multiple articles, like mm-hmm. a series of articles with a friend where they just discuss like these kind of B-sides of auteurs. There's like a heavy overlap between how he curated that and how you curate your show. So it just worked perfectly. Maybe you had that almost in the back of your mind, or maybe that's why you sought him out, right? He's like the head of AV Club, correct? He wrote for them for many, many years. Uh, I think before AV Club kind of turned over and jumped the shark, uh, Alex Dowd was the like film editor, but a lot of the pieces were written by Mike D'Angelo. And yeah, we had him on the talk about Irreversible because he was actually at the Cannes premiere when, by his telling, hundreds of people stormed out during that movie. <laughs> so yeah. it was great to hear that firsthand from him and then get his perspective on it because uh, it is a film that he loves. Yeah, that was a great episode. I listened to that one. You're also tomorrow, even though it's going to be probably two weeks in the past, uh, doing what's going to be fun. It's a live stream Oscar show. And to get us a little bit of it into a teaser before we dive into The Color of Money, I wanted to do something that was topical and relevant. So The Color of Money was nominated for four Academy Awards. And I just want to go over this year's Academy Awards and the ones that The Color of Money was nominated for to see who each of us would pick if we threw in the Color of Money nominations into this year's. The first one I want to do is the Best Actress in a Supporting Role. And for the Color of Money, um, it's Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. Uh, my pronunciation sucks, but... <laughs> That's like a Dottavio there. Yeah, there, yeah, yeah, you should have it. Perfect. It should be I know, all... we should go on a trip to Italy together. Yeah. Me and Mary. <laughs> Yeah, we could be like um, um, Steve Coogan and uh, we could just re- revamp that, all right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you watched those? Those are great. I'm actually a huge fan of that series, A Trip to Italy, A Trip to Greece, A Trip to... All they do is Anthony mm-hmm. Hopkin impersonations <laughs> and call it a movie. <laughs> They're fantastic. That's um, my life. <laughs> decadent food by the mm-hmm. sea. And uh, yeah, but yeah, I'm painfully well versed in the Oscar nominees this year. And I do want to thank you guys, since I have been watching nothing but these Oscar movies lately, that uh, this was such a nice break to to watch a good movie, <laughs> like in the middle of all this. Absolutely. Yeah. So for this year's Best Supporting Actresses, right, we have Angela Bassett in Black mm-hmm. Panther, Hong Chao from The Whale, Carrie Condon from The Banshees of Inisherin, Jamie Lee Curtis from for everything everywhere all at once and stephanie uh oh, i don't want to botch this i'm i'm an amateur here so do you, mark you you have the live stream how do you pronounce boy it's stephanie h good old stephanie h i don't know <laughs> it's either how or sow i'm not totally no. i'm not really sure yeah so mark i'll let you start which one would you pick if, if we threw in a uh, mary elizabeth <laughs> well that's Oh boy, that's tough only because this is not a very strong category in my mind. And uh, the only movie that I haven't seen was the Black Panther sequel because I mean, I'm sure I can find a five minute clip probably of Angela Bassett in that movie that I'm not going to sit through the whole thing. But Carrie Condon from Banshees of Inisherin is my personal pick of that category as it stands now. But boy, that is tough because I think that Mary Elizabeth uh, Mastrantonio is is so good in this. I almost think I might go with uh, with Mary Elizabeth because I don't know, maybe the the role gives her a little bit more to to do in contrast with, you know, someone like Tom Cruise and the role she plays in this movie. So, yeah, sure. I would go with her. Perfect. Yeah. So, Jordan, the, the one you have seen, I know, is Black Panther. So and Banshees, actually. So this okay. goes good because like, I'm Banshees I have seen and I'm, I think I'm in the minority in this. I was not 
really moved by it at all. I wasn't a fan of it. She was probably the strongest mm. uh, performer in it. But like you said, I think it's a really weak category because I have seen Black Panther and Angela Bassett was good in it, but I don't think it was really an Oscar-worthy performance. Off of the podcast, I actually mentioned the Paul the Weekend of Black Panther. I'd played like three video games with better moving performances than that. So like, <laughs> was, with, with, I mean, like with death scenes. So I was a little harsh on that one. But Mary Elizabeth, I like her in Color of Money, uh, particularly because I'm a giant Robin Hood fan of the classic one with Kevin Costner. And she's made Mary uh, and she's completely okay. attaches from that. I don't I didn't really catch that till later. I, I, was, I had to kind of give her some kudos for that. But I really like her in this. <laughs> She plays such a rough around the edges kind of woman in this one. So I'm going to go with her. I'm with you on that one, Mark. This is tough. I, I thought Angela Bassett was awful. I'll just be blunt. I thought Black oh, Panther was down the hammer on that one. <laughs> borderline awful. Nothing in that movie really worked for me at all. So mm-hmm. maybe a little too strong. Maybe I've soured over time even more against that. Mm. <laughs> that was a movie when we left. My wife was like, we are done with Marvel. We're putting a veto on it for, for a break. <laughs> we need a break. I uh, wish everyone would do that. Yeah. Just like stop. A lot of people have there. after that one. Because even me, as you can see, giant Marvel fan. But even me, I've taken a. I mean, you've gone to see the new Ant-Man one. <laughs> yeah, that's still in the to see list. So it kind of, I think it is definitely a hit a, a lull for sure. And Black Panther was one of the reasons. Yeah, well, I was stoked at least see Creed 3, which was also super formulaic and predictable and all that. But like Ryan Coogler's complex characters had more fleshed out in that, right? Like mm-hmm. the back and forth between Michael B. Jordan and um, Jonathan Majors. <laughs> so th- they're back and forth, like reached levels of, to me of like, De Niro and Pacino or something like they uh-huh. just had like an epic fraternal love between them and a tension between them that was really well done. And that's what Ryan Coogler does the best. And it's, I feel like he's been spoiling his talent in Marvel because he's stuck and bogged down in the Marvel crap, you know, the multiverse. And you could see that he mm-hmm. he tries to imbue or infuse even Black Panther with with the dynamicism that he can create, but it doesn't quite work like Neymar in Wakanda forever is is a is an interesting character on paper and I liked him a lot in part but like in the whole film by the end it just doesn't work he deserved his own film like it was too much it was too sprawling too comprehensive I wish they just had like had his own film Mm. Um, anyways off topic Hong Chao was probably the best part of the well for me I did not like the well I still didn't love her performance Jamie Lee Curtis is fun but it's just kind of like Campy role and why is that role? nominated for an Oscar? I don't I don't yeah. understand. No, it's a legacy nomination. Yeah, is what it is. And Stephanie H, uh, apologies to the woke crowd out there. Fun, fantastic, young, but also not enough of a role for me. So like I'm also between Carrie Condon and Mary Elizabeth. I'm gonna go with Carrie Condon. I think I like her role a lot. I like Banshees a lot. I think that she is a little less over the top than like Colin Farrell in the yeah. film and grounds it a little more. Like, I, I feel like this was a movie that was like really probably a really good screenplay and just didn't play out great as a movie. It's like a short story I'd want to read, but I don't really want to necessarily see two hours of the best part of the movies is, is the background is the landscaping. Right. And you can see a star Wars movie with a similar setting that has that. Right. But like, that's the best part for me is like watching Ireland and everything else that's happening is pretty dull, to be honest. Maybe I put too much hype on it too, coming in there to see that as an Oscar worthy thing. Kind of, I, I was surprised. Like I was really surprised. These are two actors. I really like Colin Farrell and who's the guy he's going against in that, um, who I always recognize him from gangs in New York. I fucking yeah, love Brandon him. Gleason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Dude, I really like in most stuff, and this one he'll probably hopefully win an award for. But to me, not the standout role for him. Like I, a lot of these other roles in the past are ones I really, I really identify with him. So yeah, I feel like I was definitely in the minority with Banshee with Banshees after watching that one. I do like that you called it a short story. It's very much a short story, right? It's like a it's a very dark fable. It plays out like one. It's more and more not campy is not the word, but almost so symbolic that it turns into a, a farce to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has such pathos too that it's there's something that is subtly grounded about the film. I don't know. I like Carrie Condon in it. I think that she's also a unique character. And the one thing I would say is I agree the cinematography is gorgeous, right? In the, in the Irish island off of the West Coast with the Banshees, like the Banshee characters in the tavern and how much time you spend in their old dusty like little homes. You get a sense of like actually living in a weird Irish village. But but I agree. I agree that the cinematography is probably the, one of the strongest parts about that. Well, uh, and I, uh, I I do I do love the movie. It was probably my favorite uh, of last year, and I had a chance to rewatch it uh, since. And I I just think on the most basic level, it was the funniest movie that I saw last year. While at the same time having this very sad, you know, bleak <laughs> underscore to it. So yeah, that that was enough for me. I'm definitely rooting for it wherever it is in the the categories this year. But I don't really know where that will how that will actually turn out for it. I you know hopefully it does, but. I mean, speaking to Colin Farrell, that's, you know, if we're talking about best actor, that was the big award for The Color of Money. I, I think it was the only one it won, or at least it, um, I don't know, it might have won the screenplay one, I'm not sure. It won best actor. So let's jump to that. Yeah. Paul Newman won. Mm-hmm. So for this year, would you pick Colin Farrell over that, Mark? Because you love that role? It's, I mean, it's oh, hilarious. Boy. It's hilarious. I, I think I wrote something about his furled eyebrows in like Moo alone could win the Oscar in this movie. Just like his... His comic goofiness, you know, his his yes. pouty face. He, he just has that pouty expression. Um, I think it's a much tougher trick to pull off than what Paul Newman has to do in this movie, uh, which relies so much just on his natural charisma and star power. Although I like how he keeps it reined in for the most part. But I would still go with Colin Farrell because I think it is much trickier to bring humanity to this character who is... You know, a lot of the lines are very funny, but he's never really straining for that effect. And he is kind of a dull guy and making him not just the butt of the joke for the whole movie, but actually being what turns out to be kind of a a profound character with this very deliberate arc. um, I I think that's a real high wire act. And I I do think that if he gets the award for this, that it, it really will be for his work in this movie or like maybe his best work uh, as opposed to, you know, a guy who's maybe been nominated for other things or is finally coming into his own artistically. I think it's, this is really the one that he would deserve it for. So yeah, I would still stick with him. Nice. Yeah. And I was such a fan of in Bruges, like a huge Mm. fan. And it's kind of a legacy sequel to that in a weird way, like a spiritual sequel. I know they're, they're not related at all, but you know, it's, uh, Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell together. And it's really about mm-hmm. their friendship and the twisted psychological dynamics of their friendship in two very different worlds and universes and all that. But, you know, it's written and directed by the same individual as well, right? Who has such a idiosyncratic and singular style and sensibility, right? I'm talking about Martin McDonough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Martin McDonough is always a slight hit for me and always like, not always a miss, but like there's some of them that kind of rub me the wrong way, like three billboards, um, was probably his worst for me. Like I thought he translated mm-hmm. terribly trying to tackle American politics. And I was just glad in this one that he was back in the UK, back in Ireland. So Jordan, 
I want to hear you. I, we know Colin Farrell's knocked off. This, yeah. Uh, but you got um, Austin Butler or Paul Newman, really. So I want to hear which one you would think. I think Austin Butler, actually. I like Paul Newman in, in Color Mind. We'll get into that a little bit more later. But like, I'm, I'm not a big fan of like biopics. I'm not like an Elvis fan. But I did like this movie. Like, I generally mm. went to this movie. It was what most people, I think, enjoyed at Top Gun that I missed out on. I got from Elvis that summer. So I'd like to see that one just win kind of on that merit. I was like impressed. Here comes this kid. I've never I've never seen Austin Butler in anything. And I've, I've loved his performance in, mm. in um, Elvis. We've talked about this a few times on this podcast, but Elvis was just a pleasant surprise and just a fun time at the movies for me. And the big part about it was Austin Butler. Paul Newman, like, we'll talk, to, talk about his performance a little bit more in that. But uh, even though I didn't like Banshees, I'd probably pick Colin Farrell over Paul Newman in this one. Paul Newman's good, but this isn't like the, in my opinion, the performance of Paul Newman's career. Obviously, he won it, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I agree with you guys on that one. But I'd go. Well. That's a nice. good point too, because he he had been nominated like seven times without a win by the time he got to this, and this turned out to be his only Oscar win. So you know, in that sense of this being like a legacy award, that's was kind of viewed like that at the time. Like maybe yeah. he should have won for The Hustler instead of for The Color of Money. What's funny too is uh, Paul Newman wasn't at the award ceremony. Um, before we jumped on air, we were talking about Anthony Hopkins and like that <laughs> imbroglio where he was sleeping in Ireland or whatever when he, uh -huh. he won the last award of the night a few years back. Maybe there's this conspiracy for best actors to just like secretly protest it. I mean, I, I, I think that's kind of gangster and I appreciate that because like... Fuck the Oscars at the end of the day. Like there's like some, mm -hmm. I don't know, real merit to be had from just being like, no, nah, I don't want to go. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like the people who buy into the Oscar season, which is almost all of them kind of rub me the wrong way by the end. Like I hate all the campaigning. It's so grating. And so like by the time they come around, I just want everything that was completely shunned to win and <laughs> everyone who you expect to lose and just pure chaos as I think a lot of people kind of do. I just want it to be fun. Like I get going to the ceremony, getting free drinks, hanging out with a bunch of great artists and you know, it doesn't knock their work, but yeah, like everything everywhere all at once. I was a huge champion of that a year ago. And I still think it's a film that is awesome that it's getting like awards recognition, but I just cannot take any more campaigning from that thing. I don't want to hear about it. I want, I, I want to mute it on Twitter, <laughs> like go away. Like be be done. So I'll I'll be happy if that movie shut out. I'll be happy if all of them are shut out and like whatever. I don't know. After Sun wins them all. Like and I love Paul Mescal and Normal People. I I got an inkling that that would probably be my favorite, but I haven't seen it. Brendan Fraser in the Well, nah. I I cannot do that film. Oh That's man, too much. And it's not his fault. It's not even Aronofsky's fault that much. That screenplay, man, is well, it's a stage play, but it is. I agree. Not a very good stage play. <laughs> no, man. It is such a literal spoon-fed pandering film. I cannot do it. Sorry. Um, and I so actually, I think Fraser is actually quite good in it, but he's almost better than the, you know, the material deserves. Absolutely. He's weighed down by the material, unintended. Um, More puns. Are... Yes. <laughs> uh, he's, you know, stuck under like a, a fat suit that's ridiculous. And the fat suit does a lot of the work. Uh, it's amazing how much work he does do with just his eyes alone, right? Because he's like, you know, pretty much sedentary most of the film or like, he, they get a lot of drama out of him standing up and Aronofsky does a decent job in ways, but then he does some decisions too, even in that, that are like over the top. And there's like a scene where he's just eating chicken. that's just grotesque and not like, I don't really care. I'm not trying to be like 
cancel the film. I don't have any problem like controversial wise like other people do. I just think it's like tasteless in a directorial sense. It just like was poorly shot. <laughs> just did not dig it. So I don't know. I'm stuck. Paul Newman here is so understated and so cool and suave. I'm going to go with Paul Newman. I'm going to stick with him. All right. Yeah, because you got Colin Farrell. Jordan got Austin Butler, and I respect them both. I think Austin Butler kicks ass as Elvis. I saw him in theaters, and thank God he didn't impersonate him in the way that Rami Malek did Freddie Mercury. Like, it's 10 times Oh, my better. God. <laughs> 10 times or 20 times better than that. You know, he really inhabits Elvis. He really plays it down, especially when he's working with one of the most ostentatious directors in Hollywood, who's probably telling them to dial it up. It's amazing how subtle his performance is mm -hmm. in that sense, right? With, with Boz Lerman, you expect him to end up like Tom Hanks, right? And Tom Hanks just won the, the Razzie for, I think, best actor or best supporting <laughs> actor. So that just shows how unbelievable his performance is that he was opposite throughout the film of someone who won the Razzie. And he's pretty much the the front runner for for best actor. I mean, it changes a lot. I think Brandon Fraser's kind of the front runner for Hollywood's like meta reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Like his renaissance. But I think in some ways Butler is a very strong strong favorite as well. They just love biopics and they're they're suckers. Uh, <laughs> so. Moving on, we got two more. We got best art direction, set direction, uh, which I think today is best production design. And so The Color of Money was nominated for that. I think this is a very odd decision to nominate The Color of Money for that. But I love the textures and sets of The Color of Money. But it just doesn't film like... Okay, it seemed so like a sorry to cut you off, but yeah. for 1987, the other ones that were... We're talking about art direction, right? Yeah, thanks. Okay, so the winner is uh, A Room with a View, which I haven't mm. seen. Oh, I've seen it. Oh, that's a good movie. Mm-hmm. Aliens, the sequel, the second Alien movie that was nominated, uh, Color of Money, then Hannah and Her Sisters, and The Mission. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. So those are what they're up against. Not movies you think about for their production design. Yeah, maybe Aliens now, because it's like a cult classic now with sci-fi, but yeah, not like for an Oscar. So interesting. Hannah and Her Sisters is a Woody Allen film that's kind of set entirely in like... I don't know, like rooms, like households. It's like yeah. there's no art direction in that. Like, <laughs> but that's like color money too. Is rooms yeah. other than when we go to the cars and stuff like that. It's a lot of grimy pool halls. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They feel like just they feel like real locations. Which I guess maybe if yeah. they weren't, that would be worth. You know, maybe everything we saw was an invented set. I have no idea. I guess that's what I am the most perplexed by. Right? Like, there's that overhead shot in the New Jersey pool hall at the end, right, mm -hmm. where he's showing all the pool hall tables. That felt like a little bit of a production design, but I felt like that was also a real spot. And I thought like most of these pool parlors and billiard halls were real spots. And so it's a weird choice. Like I thought art direction and set direction is more about artifice. Personally, I always thought that. It's kind of kick ass that like the old school ones were like, who could just make things feel the most homely or like yeah. quotidian and real and lived in. But I'm I'm kind of baffled here. Um, but that's a good point because like even like just like we think about movies like coming to america right all that stuff had to be like hand painted redesigned all those were sets but they look like brooklyn buildings so i wouldn't be surprised like you said those are like refurbished like good shots mm -hmm. of exteriors those insides were really just done up sets possibly like you like you're suggesting yeah. and if you watch you know if you watch something like avatar today you know that everything that you saw was created yeah by a you know production designer or whatever and Jordan, I mean, you would know your dad's life career yeah. is on set painter, right? And he, yeah, he, that's why I use that example of um, 
Sorry, coming to America, coming to America right? Because a lot of the stuff that you know you see that looks like an apartment is really a set that's been aged really well. But like you said, it's kind of going out of style. But even like Fast and the Furious, I think it was like number six. They just redesigned basically. This is one they shot in like Mexico, if I remember. I forgot what city in Mexico. But there's some scene where they had to just repaint a church to look a certain way and then re-put that church back a certain way after. All for like one scene, right? And that's kind mm. of going out of style. But that's, you know, that used to be like the complete norm. Yeah, I'd be interested to do a little more behind the scene digging on this one. I didn't do a lot of digging about production on this one. Totally. So for this year's nominees, we got All Quiet on the Western Front, huge ward epic that never got a theatrical release out here. So it's hard to give it like, I think the kudos are even to evaluate it correctly. That's how I've always felt about the discourse about this film. It's like everyone watched it on Netflix. And so like, it's a war film. You should watch a war film in a theater to really yeah. understand the war film's power or potency or like cinematography. Um, but anyways, we got Avatar, The Way of Water, uh, Babylon, Elvis, and The Fablemans. Um, so Mark, you're probably the most fluent here. Uh, which one would you choose out of these six? I mean, I would just go with the, you know, probably the most production design, which you can, can swap out a lot of these categories for just most instead of best. But I really would go with Avatar because, you know, the thing that made that worth watching to me to the limited extent that I liked it was how visually stunning it was. And I think that is something it should be recognized for. Yeah, that would, that would be my personal pick out of those. And, you know, there's good work in some of those other movies. I'm a little swayed by, you know, not really caring much for All Quiet on the Western Front. You know, I didn't see Babylon. That was one I was happy to just kind of not have to worry about sitting through this year. I would just stick with Avatar because I think that's like the best thing about it. Unless you separate that into the best visual effects category, but nice. yeah, certainly over color of money. Fair choice. I abhorred Avatar from start to finish and mm. I kind of hate CGI and I kind of think James Cameron's money is spent on beautiful tropes that are completely generic and hackneyed. I don't even care if they look pretty, like they're so unimaginative to me. Like he has so much room for imaginative possibility and potentiality. And yet we get these like pastiches of like hippie new age semiotics or signifiers. Mm -hmm. And so I, mm -hmm. I had not a worse experience at the theaters than sitting through the three hour Avatar movie. I had to fight myself to stay in my seat. <laughs> it was a grueling experience. Maybe if I watched it at home and I could take breaks, I'd be a little less like angsty about it. But man, I've been angsty about that film. So not for me on that one. I got to say that I'm a, I'm a Babylon fan. And I think that the set pieces in that are unreal. The choreography is unreal. I get why people are turned off by, you know, Damien Chazelle. He's such a precocious artist and he's so eager to please or so eager to like impress that I think it rubs a lot of people the wrong way. But just the, the bacchanalia of the film, all of the elements at play, like it starts with like a 35 minute orgiastic Roman-esque party. I mean, that's kind of like the trailers, that vibe. And that's epic. And then there's like a 35 minute sequence in the desert with like thousands of extras running around and insanity. And then there's like a really brilliant 30 minute sequence on a, on a soundstage. And it does what Tarantino and PTA films do lately. It's basically a three hour film with six scenes in it. I, I know there's more, but, but I really like these episodic films. I do like the structure. It's very like quasi postmodern, which is very much of the zeitgeist. So it's getting to be cliche, but I think he, mm -hmm. he does it well in Babylon. And I think out of all of them, it's the most like ostentatious film or decadent film. 
So like you can see the effort, right? I love that you put it. Is it the best or just the most, right? Because <laughs> like it's hard to actually differentiate the two, right? Mm. The Fablemans is is just too understated to even think of in this sense. And Elvis would be an interesting argument as well. So Jordan, where do you stand? Because I know you'd probably be between Elvis uh, probably uh, the most. That's one I've only seen on here. And actually, I was gonna say I, I'd I'd put a uh, color money on this one because <laughs> like when we talk about all these, I'm like, yeah, but did you any of these make you really feel like you're in any of those places? And I feel okay. like hell yeah, I was in a fucking pool hall of that movie I just saw like an hour and a half ago. And like with all of these, like you just described why like I'm waiting to watch Avatar at home. Everything he says is the reason I didn't really care for the first one. And I'm like, I don't want to watch it in our three hours. I'll wait. Like you said, it's like a take a break and take a hit here and there with that one. All Quiet on the Western Front is one I I really wish I would have seen in theaters. And that's why I haven't actually just watched it on Netflix because I, I like war movies and that's what I want to see in theaters. Babylon's the one that had the cast that really attracted me. I just didn't make the effort to see it. But like I said, all of these, like just based on what I've seen of them, don't seem like super immersive other than All Quiet on the Western Front, possibly. Just mm-hmm. because, like I said, the pathos, the thematic matter has the most potential for like realism. Whereas color of money that we, like, we just went through, like we're debating where those like sets are like real buildings, right? And I think there's something to say to that, like with production design with this, like kind of like you say, the simplicity of it kind of speaks volumes, I think, compared to those, like, like what we're seeing on here today. That's not to say, like I've seen Elvis and I really did like the production on Elvis. It was really cool. It's one of those ones that makes me like want to go gamble in Vegas after watching that movie. Like, But that's, I don't know. I, I think color of money. I don't see anyone making a movie like that today, given all what we just talked about with production and all the ammunition you have. With that, you know, could you really make something that grimy and real today? I don't think so. I think that's a challenge. You know, it's something of its time. So I'm going to stick with color of money. Yeah, let's see James Cameron try to recreate a pool hall. Give him a that's billion what, dollars. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that's what bums me out about James Cameron, though, is like, I, I mean, I guess he just wrote that film, but he started with like Strange Days. It was imaginative beyond belief in a very mm-hmm. different way. And the more like, he's James become... James Cameron, give me like true lies, James Cameron. Please. Right? Love like just that believable, but unbelievable. Yeah. Like plausible, yeah. unplausible. It's the fun of it all. And that's yeah. a long ass movie. I'm there for about fucking all two hours, 45 minutes of, of true lies. <laughs> Even give me Titanic, man. Titanic's epic, right? Love Titanic. Yeah. yeah. Amazing film. So, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to just totally shit on him. All of his films are better than the Avatar world. The only film, Jordan, that I would say maybe like today that really reminded me in an odd way of The Hustler came out a few years ago. And it's the card counter with, I don't know if either of you have seen that, but it's a Paul Schrader film starring Oscar Mm. Isaac. It's just funny. Like my way, I didn't watch it. I know which one you're referencing now. Sorry. Yeah. We should do it on here soon. But, but what's hilarious is like, you would never in a million years ever see that nominated for best production design in 2021, whenever, or 2022 when it came out. So it just shows you how drastically this, this field has changed right? It is the most production mm-hmm. design today. It's not the best necessarily, um, or it's not the most like understated in any sense of the concept of production design. Yeah. Um, so our last one, best screenplay adapted from another medium, as they used to say, it was really the verbose um, category back in the day. Now we just call it best adapted screenplay. Here, the color money is based off of a novel by Walter Tevis uh, and a screenplay by Richard Price, who is a novelist. He set most of his Books I read in New Jersey, they're all these kind of gritty and seedy, which very strongly comes out here. And our nominees for 2023 is All Quiet on the Western Front, Glass Onion, Living, which the adaptation of Ikaru, Top Gun Maverick, and Women Talking. <sighs> Worst written film of the entire year, of course. It's probably going to win, but that's just <laughs> my opinion. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm completely on board. I'll let you 
um, dig that grave publicly because it's, uh, Oof. It, <laughs> it's, I guess, probably not a popular opinion to have in some circles, right? Uh, but man, it's just, it's a ideological pulpit film. Like it just completely yes. grandstanding and like, there's no nuance or subtlety to it at all. And it's the most written film though. So I guess that's why, right? Yes. It's like the most scripted film. It makes sense, right? Once again, we're, we're, it's not the best, but the most. Some of these just weird me out. Like, I don't get why we call legacy sequels adapted screenplays. I feel like it should really be adapted from like a, another novel or mm -hmm. another work. But like Top Gun Maverick, like, why is that an adapted screenplay? It's just so weird to me because they have the same characters. Like, I feel like it's just a brand new... Point. I didn't think about that. They put sequels in this category automatically, which is why I was wondering, why is Glass Onion, the Knives Out sequel in this? What was that adapting? And it turns out it's just because it holds over the character of uh, Benoit Blanc. And that's the only thing that even makes it a sequel because it's really like a standalone movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. At least The Color of Money was technically based on a novel, but it was very different from what I understand. Like they almost threw the whole thing out. The, the, the funny thing about Glass Onion, right, is I was an early critic calling it too online. I was of that camp. And then it got sort of co-opted by like the worst of the worst. Like Ben Shapiro came out calling it too online. And so like, it was like, <laughs> oh, everyone was kind of by association coiling in shame um and thankfully like a few people i i like legitimately respect were like you know what no it's too online just because like we could share opinions with people we don't dig like which Very is true. yeah it's i don't want to go too deep into glass ending but at least it's fresh in there. I mean, I don't get why sequels are in there. And it's a very overwritten mystery film that like kind of talks its audience through every plot development. But hey, I, I thought I did some savvy things in reinventing the screenplay of the first one in a new way. Like it tweaked it, made it feel fresh. I just thought it was overwritten once again. So that wouldn't work for me. Jordan, what do you think here? This one I'm going to have to go put go color money again. I mean, like I said, I'm not a Top Gun hater, but I'm with you. I don't see why it's in here. Like, I'm not buying the sequel as a reason to put it in here. But traditionally, I think it should be adapted from some sort of literary work or some sort of published piece or whatnot. Like, Top Gun's the only one in this category I've actually seen. I haven't seen Glass on any of these other ones. But if I'm going to go Top Gun versus Color of Money, yeah, Color of Money is actually, I think, an all-around better movie and I think a better Tom Cruise performance. So, yeah, I'm going to go with uh, Color of Money for this one, too. And uh, Mark and I were already chatting this week about living a bit. Uh, I was persuading Mark to mm. watch Ikaru. I Ikaru's, definitely will. It's just yeah. bad timing. <laughs> yeah. And I feel so bad that you were <laughs> had to see this backwards. And I hope it mm. doesn't tarnish or just like taint that experience. Yeah. I not fear ideal. it might. Uh, but the Kurosawa film is fantastic. So this is maybe the worst adapted screenplay of all time almost. <laughs> like, <laughs> like up there for me is like biggest botch ever. Um, so that's written off my list 100%. We both written off Women Talking. Top Gun, I had fun. Great Hollywood movie, but the screenplay, I, I don't know. It's not the screenplay that sold it. It's the stunts and you know yeah. what I mean? All the other stuff that, that really gives that movie its oomph. Glass Onion, I think it's just too on the nose. It's too topical for my liking, which is fine. I could, I could see someone making the counter argument to that. And the only mm. thing I think about All Quiet on the Western Front is it's a mediocre war film that's decently shot and that is utterly elevated by a kick-ass score. I think the score is out of this world and everything else about that movie is completely ordinary and usual. And it's not bad. It's just like, to me, like a two and a half star film. The score... It is the only thing that does like feel like it's saying like it's a modern movie. Everything else kind of feels just like a good film, like a good war film. I mean, I was reading like the guy 
found his great grandmother's harmonium and put it through a Marshall half stack and creates this very Trent Reznor esque. It's just like crazy score that uh, I thought was like blew my mind. I was like, what's going on here? Is this in this film? Is something wrong? It's like my Spotify on. Uh, it's very counterintuitive. It yeah. made me think of Hans Zimmer and like the Christopher Nolan scores mm. uh, above everything else, which, yeah, is not what you expect. And it at least got my attention. It was the one thing that wasn't completely just redundant about that movie. Yeah. Although it, even though you get used to it quickly, though, so even that almost started to get overused for me by the end. But maybe because there was nothing else going on. Fair. Um so anyways, not that one for me. I'm sticking with Color Money here. I think that it's a fantastically written film. The screenplay is amazing, in my opinion. So I'm sticking with that one. So Mark, which is your choice? Yeah, that's. I think this is an easy win for Color of Money, because I think it's a pretty weak category in general this year. Out of the actual nominees, I would give it to Glass Onion, just because there's something going on there, at least structurally, that is interesting and different. And there were clever things that I think would reward a second visit. Uh, although I, I think that the first film probably should have won that but uh, compared to all of those i think that one of the best things about color of money is how terrific the screenplay is so mm -hmm. absolutely i would give it to that yeah i mean i just thought the straw man in glass onion rubbed me the wrong way right like it was too easily like edward norton is elon musk and bautista is joe rogan and i didn't feel like the takedowns were just savvy enough um and then like i felt like the twist i don't know there's like a lot of red herrings and a lot of like cheat mode stuff in making the plot work, like over plotting to make these mystery shifts work. But yeah, I, I like that you stand up for that. And that one, the more I think about it, I want to revisit it because at least it, it's an elaborate plot and it's mm. very imaginative and inventive. Um, and it feels like a fever dream creatively that came out in an odd way of the pandemic. Like that's when I say it's too online. It feels like someone who's being bombarded with a certain discourse, taking a genre, taking his previous film and kind of interfusing it all, updating it in a weird way. And whereas the first one is all about how like the familial sense of entitlement is corrupt. This one is more about like how the, the networking and nepotism of modern culture is corrupted, right? Like everyone's an influencer in this web of like entrepreneurial connections and they're all corrupt and they all kind of sell their souls for mercenary reasons, basically, at the end of the day, for capitalism. Mm -hmm. I think it is more clever than I give it props to. So <laughs> moving on, um, that was fun, interesting, a unique start to the episode for us. For real. Let's go to our film, The Color of Money, the 1987 Martin Scorsese legacy sequel, we can call it, like Top Gun Maverick, to The Hustler. So we are doing it backwards for our audience. We've never done The Hustler. I kind of thought about this a lot or reflected on this a lot the past week because Part of me was having pangs of contrition. Like, why are we doing this in reverse? And I had my first viewing of The Color of Money this week. And I've seen The Hustler twice before. And maybe that was my instinctual reason. I just wanted to see something new. But I think it works really well. I think that like certain legacy sequels you could watch and then just watch the original and it just becomes a prequel. And I think this one works fantastically in that way. So I'm excited to go backwards anyways soon in the near future. This is uh, also a very overlooked film in Scorsese's filmography, right? He has such just lauded movies throughout his career. You know, Goodfellas, Casino, The Wolf of Wall Street. And he has these gems as well, right? Uh, I mean, I, I even skipped over some of his biggest films as well, like Taxi Driver um, and so forth. Hmm. But 
you know, I, along with big. like after hours, I think the color of money and maybe like the age of innocence are some of his under the radar films. And just to start it off, I want to get both of your first impressions on this. Let our audience know, have you seen this before? Um, are you coming in fresh? And how did this strike you both as just a film on its own merit, but also like as a Scorsese film? I think one of the things that made me pick it is that I do think it's it, this is kind of interesting timing right now because between the hustler and this, I believe that was a 25 year you know spread and a, a legacy quo wasn't exactly a thing back then, at least not like the way it is now. And it's funny now to see that happening in a similar way right now with Tom Cruise with Top Gun, which is a 36 year spread between so even longer, but they both have a similar thing where they take the young hotshot star of the first movie and he becomes the more world weary mentor, you know, kind of reversing roles in the second way. So I think that that connection is really interesting here especially since now you know it's tom cruise is doing his own paul newman move right now uh, which is even relevant to the all the oscar discussion and everything except that when he did it with color of money this was like with a auteur craftsman who is in the prime of his career so i would argue this is probably scorsese's most underrated film just in general because very few people will bring it up in a conversation of their favorite ones or in terms of top tier scorsese but this was right in the middle of his amazing run of movies in the 80s, which would go from right from Raging Bull, the King of Comedy, After Hours, and then Color of Money right in the middle, followed by Last Temptation and Goodfellas. Those were all his consecutive films. And you could go back even further, maybe, and start the run with Taxi Driver, but you would have to disregard some of his documentaries he made in there. And it's up for debate if you would include New York, New York, uh, which I like, but is very polarizing. <laughs> film also. So I think that this is worthy of most of those other films that it has been going through. And especially watching it today, you can see Scorsese's fingerprints all over it. He actually even narrates the opening of the movie, which I was like, oh yeah, you how can't forget that it's him now. Uh, and that's a really cool touch. And similar with how I feel about the new Top Gun movie being superior to the original one easily. I give this the edge over The Hustler personally, um, which I think is a very good movie, but is not quite as dynamic as The Color of Money is. So I would actually, I actually think there's so many different lenses you can approach this from as being an underappreciated Scorsese film, as Tom Cruise doing a kind of like a precursor to what he would eventually do with his own legacy quill. You can look at it as Paul Newman finally getting the recognition that he deserved, or just as a screenplay by uh, Richard Price that maybe belongs more to him than anybody else as far as the whole movie is concerned. So uh, that's where I was coming from. This was just my second time watching the film, actually. It had been quite a while since the last time that I saw it. So you guys both, was this your first time? Yeah, no, this is my first time seeing it. So my lens is very much of uh, Paul Newman and Tom Cruise encapsulating that like 80s, 90s era. So for me, mm -hmm. Paul Newman's always a mentor figure in everything I'd seen him up in up to that point. And he kind of kind of continues that tradition. He's always a great mentor figure for from Slapshot to Cool Hand Luke to this one. And then with Tom Cruise, he's always the young hotshot talent dude. So for me, it's like, again, like first time seeing it, like, again, full clarity. I didn't know Scorsese directed this until I pushed play on it. Qualifying what he said, it's such a blind spot. And again, like listing, uh, you know, the Scorsese films, like I really identified, like he's uh, Departed, 
Um, Gangs in New York is one I, I really put up there. Like you mentioned Taxi Driver and uh, Raging Bull. So this was like a huge blind spot for me coming in. So I got really excited when I saw the beginning. Mm. So a lot of this like completely goes over my head, Mark's perspective. So I'm going to really enjoy this discussion. Yeah, I had a lot of fun thinking about your comments about Top Gun Maverick, Jordan, and the fact that like Tom Cruise had to position himself to be the mentor that turns into the hero again, right? And what's fun about this one, I was thinking about it by the end when I realized like I had the light bulb moment about, I'd say two thirds through and I turned to my wife and I was like, oh, Paul Newman's going to play and beat Tom Cruise's character here. Eddie is going to go one on one and he's going to, you know, take out his pupil because he's just so fed up with his arrogance. And that is very much what we see in Top Gun Maverick, right? So I thought that was fun to see. Mm -hmm. Uh, or to think about in this year, in this discourse of the Tom Cruise, it's not a renaissance, he's always hot, but like, I don't think he's ever been more hot than this year in Top Gun Maverick. Like, I just saw a video a few weeks ago where Spielberg was telling him we saved Hollywood. Like, you saved our ass, man, in, in like, a, mm-hmm. just like a cocktail party. And to think of like Tom Cruise doing this epic legacy sequel and seeing him here on the opposite end where he's the young hotshot in a legacy sequel who gets kind of one-upped by, you know, a figure that in his pre-Hollywood years was already a hot shot, right? This is Paul Newman saying like, yo, I'm back. The last line in the film Mm. couldn't be any more literal, couldn't have any more of a double entendre for Paul Newman himself. He said something along the lines of, if I don't whoop you in Houston or Dallas, then I'll whoop you in New Orleans. Mm. Whatever happens, I'm back, right? And it's just like, Mm. not only is the character back in the film, right, that he's playing, Eddie is back. They've they've revived his role. They revived his gusto, right? Because he starts off the film as like a suave but slimy salesman, right? I mean, he's a hustler in a very different sense. Um, and he has no ethical backbone, right? He's pretty much the antithesis of, of sport, right? He almost hates sport. All he cares about is money, right? He's just a businessman. He's purely entrepreneurial. And throughout this film, he, he regains his love of the game, right? To be corny. Mm-hmm. And we can get into it more and more, but there's so much meta context and subtext throughout the film about acting, right? A really savvy mm-hmm. commentary that plays really well with all of their careers. I think it plays brilliantly with Tom Cruise as well, where he is at this point in his career, coming out of risky business. And here he plays this, you know, precocious upstart who's super cocky. And can act, but can't control his acting, right? And so he has to have a mentor to teach him how to turn it on and off, right? What do they call it? The flake. He has to learn how to be a flake on and a flake off. I love the jargon in this movie. Everything about this movie is is lived in and textural. um, And it understands pool at a very granular level. At a granular level that I don't think I fully understood. That was one of the things that was hard for me, right? Um, I just want to bring that up. This is not normal billiards as we know it. If you just play like the most traditional orthodox game, right? This is nine ball. And I was trying to gather Mm -hmm. a little bit about nine ball as the movie went on. It's interesting, right? Like the break, they both shoot the ball to like see who goes first. Like have either of you ever played nine ball or have any experience with nine ball? I have played nine ball and I was trying to remember that scene when they did the break. I don't remember how it used to like decide who shot first at nine ball. It's been years since I've played pool. It's like one of the houses I lived in in college, we had a pool table. So I used to play play a lot back then. But yeah, do do you know, Mark? 
No, I don't think I've ever played nine ball. But I think it is a credit to the movie that it always seemed clear to me what was going on. The way I, I want to talk a lot definitely about how he shoots those those pool matches because he pulls out so many great tricks on there that even if I wasn't ever totally sure exactly, you know, what the rules were or how it worked with um, you know, breaking and everything, it did a great job of drawing me in. Actually, so did the hustler, and they all made it still just seem very exciting. And I admire the clarity in both of the films although it's very, very different the way that they're put together. What I thought was really cool about Nine Ball is that Paul Newman keeps talking about the speed of the game. <laughs> I mean, he even does like this long analogy to drugs and like all the young kids today are like coked out, right? And on speed. And back in the day, they just drank booze. Though he, he can't be saying that it's too different from the old days because in The Hustle, they also play Nine Ball. But there is something about the the speed of billiards increasing and accelerating and aging him out right that is going on here whereas the hustle felt like a, to me a very slow burn film mm-hmm. and that's where its powers it's it distends and billows and the great jackie gleason i is a good almost encapsulation of that film he's a big guy a big presence as the antagonist and they didn't get him for this film and i read that they they tried to they kind of wrote him in he was even presented a draft of the script. The original, he plays Minnesota Fats, right? Which is an iconic character. It's similar to like Top Gun Maverick, how they brought back Val Kilmer's character, Iceman. I kind of respect Gleason though, because he thought he, he he actually rejected the role. He said he felt like he was an afterthought. It felt too much like, oh, this is this Marvel-esque or even in that sense, the Top Gun-esque like cameo of like interpolating a, a character to be like, yo, what's up? Look at this guy. Look at this like mm-hmm. wink to the past, you know? And I think that there is something really tacky artistically about that. And it sounds like everyone that was involved were torn because they did respect mm-hmm. Gleason and they did respect this character. But at the end of the day, they they picked aesthetic merit over that. And and I, I give them kudos for 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 taking that taking that route. And it's not an easy decision. Well, and apparently the novel, The Color of Money, is completely about the Minnesota Fats character. It's about Eddie finding him and taking him out uh, on the road or something. And so that shows you just how thoroughly they rewrote this in the screenwriting process. And when they did try to fit him in afterwards, it's like, well, how could we put him in there? It really was like an afterthought or a token kind of move where I I really admire the movie for just totally going on in its own direction, just to find what worked and go with that. And that's these three main characters. So that's interesting too, because that one's all about Eddie seeking out a rival. And this one's kind of about the top hotshot, right? Tom Cruise's Mm. role here as Vincent comes off very quickly as the guy to beat. Like there's no question of his talent. He schools John Turturro's character, right? Julian. Mm-hmm. And Paul Newman immediately sees his talent. And I love his psychological scheming, conniving mind games that Paul Newman plays in the first act of this film throughout to seduce and recruit and to gain power, not only over Vincent, but also over Carmen. I would say his agent, his manager, right? His stakeholder. He's also playing her, right? Because he's telling her, like, you don't have the chops to truly mold or shape this young talent who doesn't have any real control over himself. Mm -hmm. So he kind of swoops in. But as the film goes on, too, he recognizes her importance, too. So he's not only denigrating her, right? He has that dramatic and very melodramatic sequence 
gets into crazy intense gender tensions where, you know, Scorsese shooting her on the bed, propping herself in a very sexual way. And then Paul Newman flips out because she has a scene where she lingers nude in the bathroom for too long. And he, he senses that. And they do a really, really subtle job of giving us all of the, the signals, right? How she is kind of maybe using her sexuality to manipulate him, right? You know, she's savvy as well. And that, uh-huh. that's really why her character is so dynamic and nuanced. And, you know, he grabs her and takes her into the bathroom and it's it's really intense, right? And he says, don't flirt with me. I'm not your daddy. I'm not your boyfriend. And then you're like, oh shit, this is super abusive, super <laughs> menacing. But then he very quickly shifts and you realize like he thinks of her as a co-partner and he needs her and he needs, he uses her throughout, right? But he says, we have a racehorse here, right? And that's, that's Vincent. We have a thoroughbred and you make him feel good. I teach him how to run. So he needs a co-handler, right? I found that really interesting that dynamic, but he has to first swoop in and and seduce. So what did you think about Paul Newman and the complexity of his character as a mentor figure, right? Because I I saw a lot of pieces saying like, this falls into that old, very time-worn formulaic film of the mentor figure uh, and the young prodigy uh, being sort of replaced. And I was like, yes, but I mean, this is a very, very complex psychological film, in my opinion. And so I just want to uh, hear your take on the recruiting methods of Paul Newman and their relationship as a mentor pupil, like how it veers from convention. Yeah, I think of the Shine's theories, like I said, the duplicity comes from a place of genuine like concern and want them to grow, right? Because he refers to them as like children at some point. Like you said, it, it comes off as he's going to use them. He's more like Albus's manager when you first get introduced to him, right? He's going to take 60%. Seems unfair, right? But he's also teaching them through kind of like hardship and through tough love, if you will, the grit and what it takes to really like live in this world, right? seeing the talent and then uh like honing the talent very much like like all these other sports movies we see but it's just much grittier given the world we're, we're working with we don't see i was trying to think of like other movies that we've covered that kind of fall into this and the closest i was thinking of like was like rounders in terms of like learning the tough lessons like and that one is Tuturo, right who's actually like the mentor figure he's trying to teach matt damon's character you know you want to play it safer in that one right whereas this one Paul Newman's dipping his toes in all of the danger and teach you how to play the danger and play the odds and how to ride the waves, right? And so that's that's definitely like the pool of his mentorship where it's it's very off-putting and it, it's in stages, like you said, where it seems like predatory, but then there's a lesson there, right? There's a real lesson there and they disengage with that lesson. Like he says, you always hear me, but you don't listen. Obviously very paternal, sounds very much like a father, but it, it is, it's true. It's like he's dealing with these kids who want to go to the next stage without doing the fundamentals. Right. And he's teaching them the fundamentals. Like you have all the talent, like you said, but now you got to learn the fundamentals of the game. And he, it shifts again, where he comes like, I like this game again. And he kind of like leaves them and then goes into like our third act. So I was fascinated by that because I was very like off put and like on edge with where he's going. And I like, you said, the complexity and like roughness around the edges to what is, especially with Tom Cruise, because he helps him with this woman who's very much like using him in some ways. Right. There's this great, like the story of how they met. Right. It's basically she robbed him. She robbed his mom's house. She still got the mm. necklace right you know she's the bad girl he's he's the guy he does right he's trying to impress her by you know going into these you know not so clean places right he's no longer in the suburbs right and it's also he's doing him a favor by wrangling her if you will right and also kind of you know keeping the talent from seeing that there's a lot of politics going on but it's a lot of just like wrangling on his part for the product right and trying to keep on that trajectory and that's where i really like it. the sports aspect if you will of this game when we get into it right we're talking about 
billiards and nine balls like the sport but now we're getting to like the management aspect and the talent like the pay and all that and it's all like word of mouth whereas we just covered like you know draft date all these other ones where we're talking about like contracts etc so i was really fascinated by that and like still these same lessons about money money versus time versus experience and how you value that and quantify that i like the way that like, i think scorsese explores that here a lot different than what we've encountered so far in our podcast it's much bigger than being about pool it's about managing you know talent and being a student of human nature and that's why i think this movie's all about the particulars of everything even if you think it's a typical trajectory the details detail to it and this particular psychological dynamic of these three characters is what makes it so special and I think this is a much more interesting film from being from the perspective of the management this really is Paul Newman's film or, or Eddie's film you know it starts with him it ends with him there's a long section in like the third act where it's just him so we get to be there with him all the, w the way through where he's seducing them by you know making these bets you know at the bar about oh that guy's about to give up hitting on that lady and I'm gonna leave with her and then we later find out that he knew both of them this lesson that he teaches Tom Cruise about mercy where he wants to go easy on this old guy with a hole in his throat and so he lets him do it but then leaves you know before he can get the money from him and a whole big fight breaks out. Yeah, just using what motivates him. And that includes his girlfriend who, again, herself is, you know, much harder and tougher than Cruz is and very yeah. worldly, but without becoming like a villain or there being some kind of manufactured conflict that comes out of that. I was really relieved that there wasn't some sort of big split between the two of them. We're just able to see how she manipulates him along with Paul Newman's character. And, you know, you were saying about how Tom Cruise is used so well in this. And I think this is the best use of that early cocky boyish, you know, personality that he brings to everything because he really does feel unformed in this. Like he's just has this totally childlike energy to him. And the movie becomes about him learning how and when to wield that, when to stop showing off, when to aim for the long game instead of just that short term, uh, you know, dick swinging appeal, which it totally applies to Tom Cruise's career. What he has done throughout his career that made him last so far past just being this action star in cheesy movies like Top Gun or Cocktail or Days of Thunder or all those things. There is that kind of meta aspect about performance to it that I think makes this more than just Tom Cruise showing up and showing off the pearly whites and everything. And it's, it's how these three characters are pitted against each other. It might help, you know, if you have seen The Hustler, that might help with giving a little background into where Eddie is coming from, I guess, where he might mm -hmm. seem more predatory at the beginning uh, if you didn't bring that history with you. But it, I think it works totally fine on its own without that. Yeah, definitely. It picks up there. So that is where this really works as a sequel. It's continuing the contours of his personality and the character traits that you become acclimated to throughout that film right off the bat, right? And it gives you almost no context that he's a liquor salesman, right? I mean, you kind of get it by just induction, mm -hmm. right? Everything is, is very, very smoothly gathered and harvested as an audience or a viewer of this film. And I love that as well about it. It's very suave in the way it tells its story at all times. It goes for understatement when you when you think it's going to hit heavy and it goes for heavy when you think it's going to fall into a lull. Like in the middle of the film, there's the werewolves in, in London, Warren Zevon song. And it's so much fun out of nowhere. And it's just like rambunctious 
cautious and he have that great like montage of Tom Cruise and it, it moves from non-diegetic music, right? Just soundtrack music to Tom Cruise singing it. I love mm-hmm. that, right? It's just it's very Scorsese-esque right there. Then at the end, right, in the final showdown, or at least the long match between Paul Newman, uh, his character Eddie and uh, Vincent, there's like no music at all. It's silent pretty much. Just the crack of the balls. I think he puts a little sound here and there. Unique. He, he moves to minimalism. He wants the moment to speak louder. And it's cinematic trickery, right? That, that last game is filled with slow motion and zoom pans and just all these sorts of flourishes that are really interesting. I do want to jump back real quick, continue to talk about the slow seduction, because I think it's, it's very interesting. When Eddie first catches an eye of Vincent playing, right? Mm. And he goes up and offers his girlfriend slash, I I would say she's the manager at this time, Carmen, $500 to play him, right? He's schooling her right there as well. And I mean, first he offers it and then she wavers and vacillates and he tells her finally, you should have said no, it's too much money and I'm an unknown, right? And that's like definitely a diss in some sense or an insult saying like, that was extremely naive of you not to immediately say no, right? You never bet Mm -hmm. with a complete unknown, which I kind of don't buy because like they're always going to these like foreign pool halls and kind of betting with unknowns, but I get it because what they Mm -hmm. do, they do kind of set the tone that they go to these halls and they play for a few hours and get a real sense of the room Mm -hmm. and a sense of the other talents it is such a weird sport too because like how much can you ever know if the opposite end of the game is also throwing you know their talent right for for a length of time like it's always tricky the psychological dynamics it's very much embedded in game theory this whole idea of hustling of faking it of being disingenuous in your performance so that you can outperform when you get the big pot or so that you can be an underdog. There's all these different tactics they use, right? Or the favorite and throw a game, right? That's kind of what happens at the end is that Tom Cruise ends up performing really well and then is able to throw the game against Paul Newman's uh, character, Eddie, right? Mm -hmm. And and take the $8,000 pot or whatever, or even it's even more. I don't know. I think he maybe gives- Gave him 8,000. Gives him 8,000. He made even way more than that. But all that type of maneuvering, right, is very much embedded in game theory. It's It's always a chess match, right? The psychological manipulation that goes on here I thought was shrewd because by the end as well this is what I want to bring up I don't know who's schooling who and I think there's a sort of synthesis by the end of the mentor figure right also being naive he's yeah. lost his passion he's lost his ambition he's lost his sense of authenticity completely because he's so smart and so wise and so cynical and so world wary that all he thinks about is money right mm-hmm. and I I love that in the very first meeting, right, when they go have dinner, he tells Vincent, he says, you are a natural character. That's what he says, right? His whole thing is about being a flake, Mm. but he's he's natural at being a flake. He is an affirmative existential personality in the sense that he lives for the moment. And in that first game where we see Tom Cruise school John Turturro's character, he wants to play anyone. He just wants to play. He's got that kid-like joy, that ebullience and fervor, like he... He has none of the corruption, none of the depravity of Paul Newman's character. And by the end, it's completely inverted or flipped. Throughout the film, what Paul Newman's character, what Eddie is learning is that he's lost that. And that means more than every cent that he's been making. 
Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, throughout the film, Vincent is being adulterated. Let's let's say it's a weird use of that term, right? But like he's being led astray, right? By the devil. So like mm -hmm. there's this idea that as wise as Eddie is, he's also a very Faustian figure. And he's constantly Definitely. trying to learn to make Faustian bargains. So. Especially because like you said, when he does get the passion, it costs him his pride more than anything, right? And even though he has a celebration at the end, it's to get that pride back, right? And that's one thing I agree with you. Like it's a, there's a great shifting of the torch, if you will. And like he outsmarts him, like you said, by playing the other angle of he's going to play too hard, right? He's going to play too passionately. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to lose this one. And it's that ding on his on his cheek of armor right that leads to that cool ending but i'm with you like the shifting of the torch i think is is the most one of the most interesting parts of this of the way the movie concludes because it, it is a passing of the torch tom cruise's character comes off pretty smart in that instance and when we get the handoff of the money like you know it's more of a rivalry out of respect kind of ambition kind of thing going on there i like the complication here we're, we're with our mentor figure and our mentor figure learns a lesson at the expense of his hubris the lesson he's keeps harping on them is ultimately like you know the thorn in his heel so I, I really did like that right i like the way that drives the passion to the ending my one gripe on that is like scorsese's like really deliberate transition of the swimming pool jump where we get the transition of hey he's reborn right and that's what it really drives that third act there's a little too now it seems sounds a little too Scorsese is the way I want to say it, right? Because we have this great scene with the dude diving in like Jesus Christ into the water. He comes up, right? The baptism scene. Then we get literally new eyes with the doctor changing lenses in the next one. And then the three crosses at the pool hall he first walks into in the background. But just like, you know, the classic like Scorsese, like laying down that Roman Catholic law, which I kind of like too. Like oddly, like I'm, as I'm chirping, I did like him. Like I love the ridiculous architecture of like God and rebirth. And like, again, he's a very religious character too he says like right he, that's one of his uh, identifying factors i think when he's talking to tom cruise's character so i did like the way it calls back to it but i was also like damn she's about to change right here right so I, it was a little heavy-handed but as we're, as we're dissecting right as uh, under a second viewing i could see why it might hold up but i was kind of chirping it a little bit i'm like oh here comes scorsese bringing out the rebirth right now but i do like the way it's, the tables turn on him the way the the young gun flips flips it and he's his pride is really what dwells in the end yeah the roughest part that i always have with the movie is in that transition when the two characters do split and i think part of that is because it might make more sense if you've seen the hustler but if you haven't up to that point it seems so much more about this specific you know mentor dynamic and not so much about eddie's own talent and and him being the player himself yeah. so without having that from the earlier movie it does seem a, a little bit abrupt when he gets hustled by forrest whitaker in one of his first big film appearances before he was known at all and he, i think he's terrific in that scene too yeah. like a star is born there <laughs> but sure. uh that being the one scene that kind of turns him and makes this split from the vince is you know, always something that that feels a little like it wasn't set up enough for me. So then as it goes on, I think that when it really finally comes back together for me is when it is revealed that Tom Cruise actually threw the game against Eddie without him uh, even being aware of it. And that's where it clicked into place to me that they've gone through this role reversal where suddenly Eddie is wanting to prove himself and where he just wants the best game from his opponent and himself, which is specifically what Tom Cruise says at the beginning of the film he wants from John Turturro's character. And now when he finally is reunited with Tom Cruise's character, we finally discover that he has become this expert hustler who is doing this and it is all about the money. And now Eddie just can't stand that, which 
leads to them finally coming back for a rematch at the end. And that's where I'm like, okay, now I understand exactly where this has been going and what the arc is here, which is a lot more interesting than if Vince had just split from Eddie because he didn't want to, you know, he's just rebelling against him and wants to keep winning. That would have been much more expected. So once I can get over that kind of hump and maybe they just needed more movie or something to really sell that and the passage of time at that point. But the way that it leads to that final scene between them. And even though the movie does end with the corny 80s classic freeze frame of Eddie, Fast Eddie's back, baby. And maybe a moment like that is what makes people kind of want to lump this movie in with other ones that are, are more typical. But the fact that it's denying showing us the rematch at the end and it ends before we get a real match between the two of them is a very bold move and I think helps redeem any of the rockiness you know on the way there I do think though that there's a interesting thing going on here where to a degree you're questioning everything that Eddie taught them right because Eddie's the one learning the lesson in this film right it ends with Eddie's lesson more than it ends with Vincent's lesson, any lesson he might learn. So I'm trying to wonder in my head, what lesson then did Vincent learn? I guess I'll ask both of you if you could think of like, what is his character arc here? Like, how did he grow? Because he starts the movie as the pure ardent hearted pool player who lo- who, yeah. who is just like, you know, in it for the love of the game. He may making a few bucks at the pool hall, but he's not trying to trick anyone. He has no duplicitous Machiavellian schemes going on in the back of his head, right? He's just a true bona fide pool hall junkie. And by the end, you could say that he's somewhat of a wayward and lost soul. So should we think of him as a tragic or fallen hero? Or should we think of him as some sort of a, is there some sort of reconciliation here? I'm wondering. I'm curious. You're talking about Vincent, right? Yeah, Vincent I'm talking about. Tom, Tom yeah. Cruise's character by the end. Like, where is his story arc? His story there's... arc almost goes with Eddie's. Because Eddie's also the constant reminder of what he can still be because he's still young, right? It's the idea, like you just said, like not to lose passion. Like he has the skills now to really play the game, to make money, to make the rounds, right? He understands it now. But the most important thing is even though you understand it, right? The greed and not let it like make you a little too hardened to it, right? To understand that, like you said, to still have the passion, to still play for the sake of playing. It's important to remember that, I think is the thing we're kind of getting at, at the end here. Because like, I don't really see him... As like, like I said, like you kind of put him as like a loss. So I'm not sure if I'd qualify him as that. Cause like, I'm with you. I was, I was the end of the question. Like, what did they learn? Cause like this, the game is so complicated and duplicitous and it's all based on, on lies really. Right. But in the end, like we get that message that it's all about the sport still. I think that's one of the things it comes down to. And that's what the one thing he tried to take away from Tom Cruise's character by them leaving with that competition, right. That unspoken, we're going to play heads up kind of thing against each other. Right. I think they both leave on a positive note. Yeah, I think that at least getting up to that last scene, he's turned into exactly what Eddie was trying to get him to turn into the entire time. And he's definitely, wherever he goes from there, which is kind of an open question, he is more worldly about things than he was before. And I don't think necessarily that, you know, this is the end point for him, even as a tragic character. And maybe that final moment is Eddie bringing Vince around yet another time with throwing the money back at him and that, you know, okay, maybe I was wrong. It's not all about this. I just want to get your best game. And so, yeah, I think that helps kind of leave us with a grain of hope there that, you know, maybe he could, and he'll end up just going through what Eddie ended up going through to get to this point. And, you know, he's got a long, many, many years ahead of him too. I don't know, maybe we'll get a color of money Maverick and we'll, (laughs) we'll get to see him finally come back around again. there. But I like how it it leaves that open without really making it definitive 
to us. But hopefully he learns yet another, you know, right lesson from Eddie being back, baby. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I utterly agree. That's why I was almost yeah. playing devil's advocate when I was asking the question, because uh, mm-hmm. I read it as that's a synthesis. That's the full character arc you have to go through to be worldly, right? Yeah. It's not to lose all integrity, but you have to, for at least a time period, enter the subterfuge and learn the ins and outs of the duplicitous, you know, backstabbing and scheming mm. to then regain a love of, of the game in a mature enough way that you're not going to be exploited and that you're playing with the big guys, right? Because after the match, when they have the big reveal and Vincent gives Eddie the money and tells him the whole ruse, right? That that he actually was not trying in their match and their, their roles completely flip, right? That's like the seminal moment where their roles flip. They get an argument and they're both kind of saying, you used me, blah, 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 right? One thing that Eddie does say is that, but now you're with the big shots, right? It's all a wash, he says. Yeah. So it's like, yes, I used you, but that was part of your journey. Like that, you know, a lot of practice, a lot of development in in many senses is to make someone fail on purpose so that they could learn their lesson. And I think the whole mm-hmm. point of this movie is to actually have him fail by the end, but fail in a victorious sense, right? Like you just said, Mark, he plays it perfect. He does exactly what Paul Newman wants him to do his whole film, right? He sells the game, makes the big paycheck, cashes out. So now he's got the worldliness. And now that he's seen this, this, his mentor figure once again, flip the script, there's the synthesis there, right? The, The synergistic moral complexity that you get from a Scorsese flick, whereas you don't get it from your average Mm. sports formula, which takes me back to my irritation at Ebert's take, right? When he says like, this is just a story of the kid who wants to knock the master off the throne. Mm. Absolutely. It's not. What a reductive opinion about this film. Yeah. You have to miss the first 30 minutes of the movie to even come to that conclusion. Absolutely agree. And there's something really ingenious about the fact that it does tease that, right? Mm-hmm. It teases all these formulaic sports tropes and genres, but it really does something that I haven't seen in many of these other films. There's a, a back and forth between the mentor and pupil figure that isn't mm-hmm. one-to-one or it isn't this like easy, disney you know, moral growth and maturation story. It's definitely though still in that space, but it does have extra elements, right? And I appreciated that he brought up the very formalistic sequence where Paul Newman jumps into the pool and then the match cut where he's trying his corrective lenses are on right here. He's getting his eyes checked. It is so hyperbolic and kind of ridiculous for the rest of this film, which doesn't feel so right symbolic ever. I, I did kind of love that though, because I think that was the moment where it was telling the audience that the shift was happening and it was in a way like very biblical, right? Like you, like you said, the water and, and also eyes and vision, right? And this re-seeing. I'm also even torn where like Eddie's, is it his wife or girlfriend? I don't really know. Love trying to be his girlfriend, it sounds like, based okay. on their conversation. Right. With their ongoing thing about going to the Bahamas, which is kind of cute. When he actually gives away the money at the end, she says, I'm a fan of character. And I thought that was almost just like too on the nose, uh-huh. uh, telling the audience what to think about his character. Like, I like it when they weave these types of lines in dialogue that doesn't feel like that heavy handed. But yeah, I, I, I want to talk too, though, about all the trick shots in this film, right? Like, like Poole has trick shots. This has a lot of, of fun cinematic trickery. Very Scorsese. Lots of zooms, lots of needle drops, which you get. Uh, it is a Scorsese film through and through. 
And I just want to know if anyone really appreciated just purely on a more technical level, we, you don't have to get too into the meticulous jargon, but like what directorial flourishes did each of you really get drawn into? I'd say for me, like the whole sequence with, like you mentioned earlier, Tom Cruise, when he's doing the world of London, spinning the stick and all that, the scenes with him stand out. For me, a lot of the shots with the ball were hard to follow, pretty frenetic. I appreciate the sound. Like there's like that almost like, I don't know how to describe the sound when they uh, break the ball. But like a lot of the shots, I feel like I missed a lot of trick shots. I feel like I did a lot of rewinding and kind of going back and be like, oh, that's what he did there. So for me, it was a, a little frenetic with the actual shots of the ball. There's some really great shots, like with the balls going down in the pockets and stuff like that. That were really cool. I, I really like, I love the scenes with like Tom Cruise around the table and even Paul Newman, like around the table when they get the close-ups of the ball. It was like, for some reason, I just couldn't follow it. I usually can with a, a kind of like fast cuts and like that. So I wasn't like too big of a fan of it, but like, those are also like key moments. Like I said, the stuff like with the movements around the cable that were like fucking awesome. That really just like established and set the tone. Yeah, I, I mean, I really was just thrilling to the filmmaking in general, whether it was the pool scenes or not in this movie. I think pacing wise, it just moves and moves. And especially when uh, Vince first encounters Eddie and we see him start to get Eddie's attention, you know, shifting from the girl to him with these really quick pull ins and pull outs with the camera. I mean, the pool scenes themselves, he keeps finding new ways to liven them up. And I appreciated all of them. However, you think the clarity, you know, goes with them, but just all the whip pans spinning around the table, he's sometimes quick cuts, sometimes he'll let a, a shot go out a little longer, or we even get like a time lapse the overhead shot of a game going on. And I was really cool shot of Paul Newman, like reflection in a ball towards the end that goes on for a while. But there is a, a, a scene that has nothing to, it's not about the pool playing at least early on that I like rewound to just see how he staged it. Cause it was such just a perfect realization of what was going on in the script, which is when he first gives Tom Cruise's character, the, the babalushka or whatever that, that fancy pool stick is called. So we follow Tom Cruise. Well, actually, the important setup there is that he's basically trying to convince uh, Eddie. I keep switching between the actor and character names. I should just pick one. But he keeps telling Eddie that, uh, you know, suggesting that his girlfriend is getting a little bored with him because he can tell he's reticent about going out and he's already tapped into this motivation that he can manipulate. So all he does is drop this little, you know, comment about how, you know, I can see her getting kind of antsy to get out of here. And then the shot starts with him following Tom Cruise out of the office, like with part of the frame left in darkness. The camera stays there while we see Tom Cruise go out and start talking to his friends and showing them the pool cue while at the same time we're seeing his girlfriend come walking back down the bar where he doesn't see her the camera follows back into the office where he kind of paul newman whispers something to her and then she takes off and he does this all in this one perfectly staged shot without really needing to put too fine of a point on it and then we just see how it all works she just goes across the street to get cigarettes and that was enough to make this seed that he just planted grow in his in his mind and start to get paranoid about her coming back. And uh, I was like, wow, was there like a cut there? Did, did this? And I just went back and watched it again and was like, man, this is what makes Scorsese great is just visual storytelling. He knows every single moment, like where the focus should be and how he can communicate yeah. things. So even regardless of the, the actual, you know, sports action scenes, he is just on a roll here at this point in his career. There's scenes where Paul Newman is in the background, yet he somehow feels foregrounded in front of the pool mm. table. And that reflection shot in, in the two ball, right? That's the that's a lightning bolt moment where he forfeits the game. 
And he holds that for longer than usual. And it's just such a powerful reflection in that ball of Paul Newman's face. And getting that light bulb moment through his face, second-handed in the ball instead of like just direct shot on his face is quite brilliant because it's all about the game. And it's like this externalization of himself and his ego and his identity in the ball. So he's in the game, literally. And that's where he re-enters the game and re-enters his love for the game. I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to like maybe oversell it a bit, but I, but I just like what a perfect moment to do such a flashy shot like that. I also really just love the road trip aspect of of it. It's a very cold, wintry Midwestern film, even though a lot of it, actually a lot of it is the Midwest, right? When they're doing their road trip, then it ends at New Jersey on the East Coast. I don't know. It felt like Inside Lewin Davis. I know those these movies came after it, but I'm talking about some movies I love. California Split. Jordan, did you see the similarities or feel yeah. the similarities between this and California Split? Definitely. Like you said, that road trip vibe, especially like the exterior shots. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah, they're just like very boozy, right? It's a very like yeah, Bukowski film to me, right? I mean, <laughs> it makes sense because Bukowski loved racehorses and that kind of underbelly, that uh-huh. seedy world. But, you know, the first pool hall they go to, they're stoked to walk into it. And it's, I don't know what it is. There's a bunch of sofas in it. Is it like- It's like it's, a storage or something like that, like yeah. couch storage space. Mm-hmm. Even the exterior of that shot, that feels like such a lived in small town. I felt like one of the ickier parts of the movie was when they went into the African-American neighborhood uh, because when they walk into that pool hall, I don't know, there's just a lot of racist undertones throughout that. And maybe that's the point. Yeah. When Tom Cruise says there's a lot of rape artists in here and it's like all African-Americans, like, I don't know. I, I don't like politically correct art in any way, but I mean, it was a bit cringe that like there is no other depictions and they do actually, you know, round out those characters a little. Yeah. But it really but, builds up Tom Cruise's character this like naive suburban kid, right? She's yeah. like, like you said, he's like, dude, she's never dated anyone like that. It's like, dude, she fucking robbed you. Her boyfriend mm-hmm. fucking robbed you. Like, you know, you, you picked her up after that. Are you joking me, man? Like, I thought, thought that was way really, it really rang a little like true. Like, I thought it really built up. Like you said, that naivety of him. Um, It works towards her too, giving her a little more flash to her character, right? How comfortable she is in that realm and how like, he still sounds like a complete like amateur around just black people, right? Whereas Paul Newman just goes in there. He's like, what the fuck is this pigeon I brought in here, right? So I feel like that works pretty well, like especially with Scorsese, with his direct intent to really create realism, especially through voice and like dialogue. And him to do that here without just dropping like N-bombs, like a Tarantino might hear. Tarantino. Right? Kind of <laughs> capture that authenticity, mind you, right? This one's a little more structure, I think really layers to like that underlying, what he's trying to establish at this point, like right? with the manipulation, like Paul Newman's character still pulling the two of them, right? It really plays well into that him taking him to that particular bar. And also it just reminds me like, like you say, what's that kind of date weird and don't date well? It's like when the Griswolds go to St. Louis. They get hijacked, of course, in St. Louis by the only you know, black city they, they encounter, right? So it's one of those ones very, also kind of like you say, it does age well. It's also cliche 80s, if you will. The other thing about that one that I thought was a little odd, though, right, is I get that it, it showed Carmen, right, is more worldly. And him is just like this very suburban sheltered kid who's just terrified mm-hmm. of anything like non-white. Right. So it almost just reflects poorly on him. Right. That kind of gets in the debate that played out in the P.T. Anderson's last film because they had like a racist guy, like kind of did this Asian accent Uh and like everyone threw their arms up in the air about it. But like all the people who I think have a higher literacy of art were like, no, that that was just to reflect poorly on this character. It was like to show how tacky he was in the film. It wasn't. trying to lampoon Asians. It was showing yeah. like his unworldliness, his unsophisticated personality. So that's always the question too, right? It's not proposing the film's worldview. It's proposing the character's worldview. 
I was just surprised that when they walk into that, Eddie was saying this used to be a nice average bad neighborhood. Yeah, and he was yeah. like, and I was just like, I don't know. You feel like Eddie is a guy who's gritty, who's seedy. It felt like not of his character to say that. Like oh, okay. he doesn't see middle class at all. Like, you know, he's a guy that is purely cozy, right? In the underbelly of the city. I mean, yeah, well, there is a kind of a, a strain of him seeing how things have changed. You know, the, the scene where he takes him to a pool hall, it ends up just being full of furniture and yeah. stuff in there kind of drives that home. So, you know, who, right. who knows what a guy in his whatever, you know, 60s or whatever would view the changing city around him. You're right. Maybe they were just trying to accentuate that too. Because, you know, when he plays midway through the film, a game against Vincent, right? He gets all pissed. He's like, this table is for dwarves or something. Because it's like super short. Uh -huh. And that's when he gives his rant that I alluded to earlier, where he's, he's complaining about how everything is nine ball, right? And it's fast. It's good for live TV, he says, right? Yeah. Well, break shots. And that's where he even says like, what the hell? Checkers nowadays sells more than chess, right? And everyone knows checkers is a poor man's chess. Like mm -hmm. true intellect, true strategy is chess, right? Checkers for mm -hmm. babies. It's fun, but it's for babies. To go on a quick tangent, I think that is interesting for our study of the sports film genre and for sports themes, right? Because we yeah. see that how games mutate and we see that friction between old world and new world, right? I don't want to get too much on a tangent, but right now they're introducing a shot clock basically in baseball. And constantly there's these debates of like they're ruining the dilating, wallowing you know, malaise and lethargic appeal of baseball. Baseball's supposed to be boring. It's supposed <laughs> to be slow, right? And, I'm supposed and to want to go get another beer when I'm there. Exactly. And it's like the, the TikTokification of baseball, mm. right? They're trying to make it appeal to TikTok culture. And it's funny because this is back in 87, but basically that's what Paul Newman is here, yeah. right? He's the old the hat. Thing. I'm glad you brought that up. I was, I was thinking the same thing in my head. I saw right. that scene. Yeah. Because he's like straight pool is pool, right? This is like handball or you can be yeah. references like some other games, right? But then again, like you could see that even his analogies don't work, I think, because he says like pool, you have to be surgical or like a surgeon. You have to have finesse. But you realize by the end that he also learns because he plays nine ball in the tournament, like that it takes a finesse as well. Like that maybe is part of his own arc as well. Like by the end, he's playing this new fast game in that tournament. Yeah. He's not playing traditional billiards. It's more of a subtle narrative that's going on, but you see that he's also adapted to the new game. Like he's gotten the glasses, right? I love that he just didn't get glasses. He got like sunglasses that were corrective lenses. <laughs> oh, like yeah. Kick ass, right? And almost aviator glasses. So like, once again, to draw that parallel with Tom Cruise and uh, Top Gun and all that fun stuff. The other thing that is interesting to me is the title of the movie, right? The Color of Money. So I was thinking about that a lot while I was watching it. And so I was trying to think... What is it trying to say about green? And they kept referencing green rooms, which is like a nickname for billiard room. So I love that the felt table on most pool tables is green. I also thought of the phrase feeling green and feeling green is something you say about like a moment of inexperience, like lack of judgment. I thought that was kind of a savvy pun in a way, right? The mm -hmm. color of money is green and we associate this word with being naive and being artless. And uh, here's this film that's all about inexperience in various ways, but then also about jadedness, right? The, the color of money is also the color of greed, right? So it's about greed and inexperience and the way those two things bounce off one another. Yeah, I kind of got over literary with that. No, I think um, that works. There's a dead quote in the center where he says, money won is twice as sweet as money earned. And it's like you said, the mm -hmm. idea of money being tainted, if you will, could be colored in blood if you want to say. I, I definitely agree. I thought it was one of those tiles like that just invites analysis. And I think it definitely delivers heavy on the analysis. Heavy on what you can't analyze, I should say. Yeah. I mean, that quote is so strong too, right? Because it's yeah. 
the antithesis of the final message. You want to earn it, but it's something I think that everyone does also need to learn. And, you know, that's why he, in the beginning, is kind of trying to mold and shape Vincent to learn is that you have to become a capitalist, right? To a degree, to end up playing with the big dogs to grow as an adult, to sustain yourself. And then once you can, then you could regain your ego, maybe. I don't know. I'm, I'm still a little, <laughs> I'm still <laughs> working back on that cognitive dissonance that I have. But I think that that actually makes this more intriguing instead of less intriguing. Yeah. I like it when it's not an easy, cohesive climax or, or, or denouement. Like you're talking about the title. Uh, it makes it about something bigger than just a pool or you know a young hot shot or something like that. We've gotten into exactly how, you know, the strength of this central, you know, three-hander, I guess, that's going on here, uh, as well as the style, because that was something that really, I found really to be special this time, and that you very rarely get in a movie that could be considered, you know, a mainstream film or a crowd pleaser or a sports film. Yeah. And you said it's very much an actor's film, right? And I guess the last scene that I wanted to bring up which I thought was brilliantly rendered, right, is the scene where Paul Newman, Eddie, and Carmen, right, are all lovey-dovey and irking Vincent because he is that jealousy, right? That's that's probably one of his major flaws, yet it's working for their ruse, right? It's, it's helping that out. And their argument after, I think, was very much metatextual, right? Because mm-hmm. they even say and bring up movies when they're trying to defend themselves because he's so upset. They say something along the lines of like, when you see people kiss in a movie, right? They don't go home with one another. But what I thought was brilliant about that is even knowing that that was going on in the scene, right? When they were playing lovey-dovey, there's always the blending of artifice and reality. There's always a disquietude or an unease that you have throughout this film as a viewer in which I couldn't quite tell when they were flaking or faking it and Uh not. And I thought that was really brilliant Mm -hmm. is how Scorsese managed to put you in that discomfort of not knowing what what was being sold, not knowing what was genuine or disingenuine, right? So it's almost like a heist Mm -hmm. movie in that sense where like the twist is also often on you as the viewer. You don't know until after moments uh-huh. like whether people are being sincere and earnest and genuine or not i like that it was that's a good point just like in that scene where he's it is the heist movie scene where he goes all right here's the plan and then we just cut ahead to them entering the pool hall and we we know that something must be up but they're all playing their parts so well that you know we have to wonder and how much is tom cruise or vince acting and how much is he really about to go take off eddie's head for groping his girlfriend like that uh, so yeah. that that line is always there and you know the reveal of him uh, turning the tables on him basically at the end, which I, I honestly genuinely didn't see coming, which I think is to the the film's credit, even though it seems like something you could have deduced by that point, I guess, uh, with him throwing the game is is a great way to throw that back in his face. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was the perfect thing. I, I knew more that like Eddie and Carmen were artificially flirting, mm-hmm. right? That was more obvious, but I couldn't tell if Vincent was mature enough at this point to be in on it or actually mad. That's where I was in that liminal space. And that's where it worked. And you didn't get the reveal until after in the parking lot that, oh, holy shit, he was pissed off. Yeah, he was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, that that is where I I thought, oh, wow, this is working also on us. Um, And as you said, I was sensing a twist. I knew they were doing a flip. You know, it's kind of the pool and glasses scene 
when they shifted. And I know that we complained about like, this was so much of a mentor story and then it becomes about him and it's kind of odd transition. But I think that works actually in the film's favor because the whole Mm -hmm. film is kind of a a misdirection or a deflection, right? The first two acts, you think Mm -hmm. it's going to be one thing and it totally veers. But it wasn't until then I knew they were going to kind of have that mentor understudy switcheroo. But I did not get that. It's obvious in retrospect and it is embarrassing to say, but as you, Mark, I did not get that Vincent was throwing that game. Until yeah, he it got me. Him. Yeah, George, did you get that? Did, nope. or did... I'm with you all three. Yeah, nice. Which all I right. think, like I say, I gave it credit to the ending. Like I, I like that. I like that. I missed it. <laughs> awesome. So we've covered this thoroughly, and for everyone to give their last two cents, is it an overrated film or an underdog film? It's not thumbs up or thumbs down. Let's try to put this in a specific context because we've all talked so glowingly about it. In Scorsese's pantheon, or you could say in Tom Cruise's pantheon of films, they're, they're canons. Would you consider it's overrated or an underdog? Jordan, I'll start with you here. Where, where would you place this? Yeah, I think for both actor and director, I'm going to put this as an underdog, especially for Cruise, because I really like Cruise in this one. This is one I have, like, like I said, it's my first time seeing this and like, He's so likable as his character for me. And you've heard me talk about him on like Jerry Maguire. Like I tend to like his movies, but I struggle with Tom Cruise. This one, I really liked his, I thought that was just like a perfect role for him at this time. Um, Scorsese, definitely an underdog. Cause I feel like it's one, like, like I said before, just off my radar. And as we discussed, there's so much to unpack. Right. And it's one you can really sit on just like all his movies, but it's one you wouldn't expect to have having this much of a thorough discussion on for sure. And this one, he captures, like we mentioned that traditional sports element, and that twist where we're kind of guessing where it's going. I'm, I'm on board. I think it's a it's definitely an underdog. I think across the board for me. So I'll let you go, Mark. Yeah, I, I think it's a quintessential underdog, especially in Scorsese's career. And maybe just because it was so commercial at a time when he wasn't making big hits and kind of the line about it was that he took the this is kind of a for hire job so he could have a hit and then get the money in the capital to finally make the last temptation of Christ, which would be a very uncommercial and controversial project. So I think a lot of those things have followed it around and I'm not sure that even to this day that it's quite gotten its due or its reevaluation like it deserves. And I think that it holds up as a Scorsese film, but also just as one of the strongest, most entertaining, you know, films like this that have a big star in them and competition petitions and drama and in a its own you know low-key way action this is one of the best that comes out of that whole string of 80s especially tom cruise movies where he's the young hotshot and it digs much deeper into that than anything else and kind of sets up maybe a precedent for him of working with other directors the people will still talk about his work with kubrick and pt anderson brian de palma michael mann and a lot of those were kind of subverting his typical screen persona and this is one that doesn't quite subvert it but interrogates it and puts it to better use than it it would have in a lot of other films and so a lot a lot of people don't even remember that oh yeah scorsese is one of the auteurs that tom cruise did do a really good movie with at this point too. And so for for both of them, I think it's important in their careers and holds up tremendously today. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting specifically about Tom Cruise, right? He's, he's the flashy adolescent hotshot who's grinning, smirking, almost like high school jock guy. And here he is that, right? And he is that naive character. And it's almost as if like he's learning how to be a more mature actor in this film, literally and figuratively, right? Like mm-hmm. Eddie says, you got to be a student of human moves. All the greats I know, right, were students of human moves. It's almost a graduation of Tom Cruise from one stage in his career to the next stage. 
And when he goes, as you said, into the 90s, right, he starts taking on Jerry Maguire's and bigger roles that are more complex than Risky Business. Uh, I, I mean, I love his 80s role, but he definitely changes tone and changes note. And this kind of has a fun, it plays interestingly with that narrative. Like if you're doing a biopic on it, Cruise and his career, this is a really interesting placeholder. And I think paradigm shift in ways. In terms of Scorsese, I think it's underdog for a very different reason. I just think it's one of those that gets completely pushed aside and marginalized when you talk about Scorsese. And it's just as complex and textured and stylistically magnificent as you know, his big gangster flicks. Uh, it's it's definitely smaller scale than a lot of his movies. Um, but like, I tend to love some of his smaller notes, like the Nicolas Cage film, Bringing on the Dead. Uh, I think this kind of fits there, in my opinion, uh, where it's a grittier film and it's more of a quiet character study. I completely disagree that, and I hate to call it Roger Ebert yet again, but he, the one thing that really stuck out <laughs> is he said it was an impersonal movie. And I do respect him for for picking on Scorsese here because I think it came out of love. He was talking in such glowing terms about all of Scorsese's mm-hmm. previous films to this one. And he felt like it was a director adapting something and just kind of like going through the motions. And I can't get on board with that though. I get on board with with the feeling that that's happening. But in retrospect, you can see that Scorsese and his signature thematic obsessions Mm. and his directorial ingenuity and experimentation is on full display here. I don't think he's phoning it in at all. Like this fits so well with the motifs and conceits of his career that it should be just in the discourse of Scorsese more. And it's not, it's barely ever mentioned or rarely surfaces. So for that reason, I think it's an underdog as well. So we always do this with our first time guests. I've been on Unwatchables, but Mark, this is your first time on Cinematic Underdogs. And so to finish things off, we have to know your top three sports movies of all time. And I'm curious if any of these are unwatchable, personally. I, I want to hear <laughs> you went for some provocateur hybrids or <laughs> malign sports movies. So uh, start with number three. I always like to go upwards. Uh, and I'm curious to hear, what's your number three sports movie? Sure. It's probably I'm the most watchable of all of them, although I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think that we've had an unwatchable sports movie. I'm not even sure if I could think of one. There's certainly some that go to some ugly places, which are on this list, but not uh, number three, which for me would be Bull Durham which is I, one I haven't seen in a long time, so I'm due for a revisit, but I remember just being utterly charmed by it as a comedy and as a romantic comedy that does integrate the you know sport aspect of it in a meaningful way. But that it, my memory of it is getting a little fuzzier, but I absolutely loved it when I saw it and just thought it was just good, like old-fashioned movie making that was gratifying and complex and entertaining and funny. And you yeah. know that it's a powerful movie when it I might be our most mentioned in top threes and top fives. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. It's up there. Yes. Sure. That and Field of Dreams, I think, are probably our top two. Yeah, exactly. But Field of okay. Dreams is such an orthodox pick. And so is Bull Durham. But like the people who pick Bull Durham are not people who I would expect to pick something that's more conventional like that, which says that it speaks to, I don't want to say this in a snobby way, but like this more highbrow seasoned viewer. There's something very subtle about that film that is that's finessed in a way that overcomes what you might think of it from the outset, right? It's very much not this this formulaic baseball movie 
the characters in that have such depth that it really resonates um, with people across the board, across the spectrum. So great first pick. And uh, it might be our most most common. I love Ron Shelton. So great pick. Number two. Uh, and I would be surprised if this one didn't come up a lot too. Maybe my number one will be more of a surprise, but uh, number two, it's very germane to the discussion that we just had because it's Raging Bull, another Scorsese film. And I think just undeniable in it's the chutzpah of the filmmaking and everything going on. And it's a, I mean, it's a pretty ugly character study and really tapes out the ugliness of Maybe even the sport of boxing is as beautiful as the sequences are and how well shot the actual, you know, fights are and everything. The way that it, it burrows into that psychology with this just awful character. Um, I, I can't deny the power of that. And when, yeah, when I'm thinking of movies that involve sports, at least it, I mean, it may be a, a predictable one, but I think it's, it's something that I, I could just, yeah, I can't deny. Yeah, not brought up enough, actually. It's weird. And mm. so apropos for this episode, we didn't actually compare it enough. And I think that's really says a lot, though, about how different, yeah. right, the color money is from Raging Bull. And it's sure. funny because they're two Scorsese movies in the same decade, yeah. also sports movies, technically, mm. and they couldn't be more different in tone and ambition. And that's not a knock on either, of course. Both are spectacular, but both are working on such different levels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome choice. I mean, I love Raging Bull. Can't wait to tackle that one. All right. So now uh, number one, let's hear it. All right. Well, I don't know. Boxing movies might just have an edge because a lot of great movies have been made that take place around that milieu, whether how central the boxing is or not. And I am really curious about whether you guys have seen this movie or what you think of it. Um, But it is Fat City by uh, John Huston from 1972. We have had Mm -hmm. someone pick this. I believe... It was fitting because it was on our California Mm. split episode, which makes a lot of sense. It was Mike Harris and that those two films are aligned. I think your sensibilities are quite aligned. So it makes sense. We have such a rare film. We both hadn't Mm. heard of it then and we still haven't like we've heard of it, but that's the only time. Yeah. So give our audience your take because it'll probably be very different than his quick synopsis of it. I mean, I'll be interested just to listen to you guys if you do do an episode about that or to just get your opinions about because it, it is a much lesser known movie, like a late period John Huston film. Uh, he made some pretty good movies like later in his career. He adapted to like the new Hollywood gritty, you know, cynical kind of filmmaking, I think better than a lot of old Hollywood directors. And it involves boxing. We have Jeff Bridges, a very young baby face Jeff Bridges, who's the new upstart. And then Stacy Keach is the guy kind of, he was him at one point and his life is just a ruin of just alcoholism and self-destruction at that point. And it's not even so much about their interactions together. We kind of get a setup at the beginning as if it's going to be a, a mentor redemption type thing, but they spend most of the movie apart. And it's just this really digressive character focus, natural realistic film where we we get lots of different characters lots of people who are just in one scene and have a really memorable moment it's just a very lived in film and there's a lot going on in it. the actual boxing matches themselves aren't as stylized but they're still very clear and authentic feeling and um, impactful and it's just a very raw almost painfully raw unflinching kind of character study that extends to everyone that's encountered in this 
city. So it's a fitting title. And, uh, you know, it's not a very plot driven film, but there are really great performances in it from Stacey Keach and uh, Jeff Bridges. And I would def- definitely encourage anybody to to check it out. It's just a very special kind of unexpected movie. I certainly didn't expect to love it as much as I did when I finally checked it out. Does this take place in uh, like Modesto or Bakersfield or Central California, like the Central Valley? Do you know where it takes place, the setting? Because I think that was what was sticking out to me. It was like kind of like in the, not like the skid row of that area or like the derelict part of town or something. Like, Is it a very proletarian type film? I think it is. So just looking at it now to remember, it looks like it's it takes place in California, Stockton, California. Stockton, yeah. That's, yeah, Central California. So as a Californian, it's a, it's a weird... I guess it has a ton of associations for uh, like us. So yes, that was definitely my character's pick as well. So now we've had two people, I think, put this as their number one or two. We've got yeah, to check this one out. This That's one. great. I didn't even mention uh, Susan Tyrell, who was nominated for uh, Best Supporting Actress uh, in 73 for the movie as well. And that just shows that there's there's so many distinctive parts of it and just going off in different directions. Not quite in an Altman way, but it has a very kind of wide I don't know, a feeling of just spending time and developing time with actors in scenes and letting it kind of just go wherever it needs to go. Awesome. I'm in. I want to watch this one. Thanks so much for coming on. And before you go, we've talked about Unwatchables. Where can our listeners find you? Sure. So Unwatchables, I mean, you can just search for it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, everywhere you could find podcasts. It's there. We have a YouTube channel. You can also go to unwatchablespod.com. That basically goes to like our anchor page where you can access everything. Uh, I'm on Letterboxd as Mark Dottavio. That's D-O-T-T-A-V-I-O. And uh, I write about everything that we watch as well and pretty active on there. Um, and yeah, our episodes come out every other Tuesday. And we've already got some in the can with some uh, critics who we had a really great time with. Uh, yeah, definitely just give it a shot, you know? Yeah, it's great. And Jordan, where can our listeners, I guess, trip at us? <laughs> yeah, you, you can actually hit that little reverse button that sends you back 15 seconds where Mark just told you where to go. All those spots, except for YouTube, you can find us, I believe. Find us on Letterboxd as well. Paul usually hits up those, uh, writes up those reviews for us. He's very diligent in that. Um, and of course, chirp us on any of those platforms. Yep. And uh, it's now called Spotify for Podcasters. And uh, let's change it back. It's a shitty name. I like Anchor. Don't like Spotify oh, yeah. podcasters. They changed it like three uh, days ago. Got the email. I was very moody about it. <laughs> I got that email, kind of skimmed it. And was, I don't even know what they're talking about here. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. It's Leave dumb. that to Tony. <laughs> yeah. It's such a mouthful. Anyways. Um, anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, it was a great film. Check it out, please. And uh, we'll be back soon. Later. <laughs>